are listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. With me today is... Shane Kirschenblatt. Shane is a artist, custom toy maker, and a drawing teacher for the Ontario Arts Council. Hey, Shane. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So we've known each other for a while. I met you at a convention once when you were working on a Dorothy Gale Journey to Oz. I think uh, that was the first time I ever met you. Uh, yes, that was uh, the first uh, series I actually created. Uh, worked on yeah yeah so i brought you in here because like we just came from a custom pop vinyl workshop that you were running and i've sort of gotten addicted to them basically people if you if you don't know what this is i mean i'm sure you know like the listening audience probably knows what a pop vinyl is it's like those little small vinyl toys with the big heads well we make our own using like epoxy and paint right like that's basically what it is yeah yeah basically it's a two-part epoxy sculpting material and acrylic paint and pretty pretty straightforward stuff so what got you into doing these these workshops i mean you're you're big into custom toy building you showed me a articulated figure that you're working on that's based on like a He-Man playset. Masters of the Universe uh, classics, like they're they're huge. Like I've was a fan of the series growing up, like more with the toys than the actual cartoons and stuff. Uh, that pretty much got me into everything. But what got me into doing the these workshops is back when we were running Temple of Toys along with Comic Book Lounge, and we had the backspace that we had events. So when Funko announced that they were doing these blank figures that lent themselves to customization, I had actually never done customs before that. I thought, okay, well, this is something I can learn. And since I have a lot of experience teaching, I figured I can announce these workshops and teach other people how to do them as I learn them at the same time. So the first workshop that, that I attended, the first one that you did, was that the first time that you'd ever worked with uh, this sort of thing? Uh, no, actually, I think the, the one that you attended was the second. Oh, it okay. was the first official workshop that was announced as a separate event. The first one we ran was part of a Halloween uh, comic fest event. Oh, okay. And um, at, th- at that point, we like James had shown up to do it. James um, James Cooper? Yeah, James Cooper. So he was the my my first um student or first participant of that program and the, I literally taught myself how to use the material like the night before. And it was just you and him, right? Yeah, it was it was just the, the two of us like I announced it as part of the Halloween Comics Fest event. Originally the idea was do a zombie version of an existing pop or if you want, you can do your own with the blanks. And he, you know, we had talked online and he said, yeah, I want to get into it. So yeah, James Cooper is just a friend of ours. He's, he's I think he's an artist too. Does he, do he do art as well? Or uh, James Cooper is actually a writer and a film director. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He, so he, he wrote some stuff for Image, I know, a couple of years back. Yeah, because I know that he's been in a bunch of comic book anthologies, right? I guess as a writer. I, I'm really bad about this, like with knowing specifically which projects a lot of my <laughs> yeah. friends have worked on because there's so many you know smaller projects going on around right, the, right. Uh, gta yeah. and stuff but we won't we won't like get you to name them or anything i just i just wanted to give <laughs> some context to the audience so that's cool man like now you're doing 
articulated figures, you're getting a little more advanced than the than the pop vinyl and stuff. Uh, yeah, I started with it with the articulated stuff because we did have back when we owned the toy store customers who were into the He-Man stuff, but they were also into, I knew other customizers who sold a few of their figures through the store. Okay. So they were interested in buying those figures. So I figure, okay, you know what? I, I do have sculpting experience. So when I say I've never done the custom figures, I have sculpted before. Uh, okay. This was just my first time working with that material. So years ago, I had done a lot of stuff with Sculpey. So when the customers I saw were buying the customs from the other people, I said, hey, I can maybe try one. And one of our regulars, I said, I have a concept. And I showed him the drawing. Would you be interested? And it was actually a figure based on the Snake Mountain playset. So it was a Snake Mountain man. That's awesome. Basically. So he he, he bought that. And ever since that, he said, like, yeah, anytime you do a custom, I'll, I'll buy it off you. So it's it's been uh, cool that I've got one customer. Uh, the first customer I've ever had for customs is pretty much open to anything I do within the He-Man universe. Did he, has he ever told you why he likes your stuff? He hasn't mentioned specifically. I mean, I, I like to think it's because of the attention to detail and the time I put into it because I am really anal retentive when it comes to a lot of detail. And I mean, whatever I sell them for, I'm probably putting in three times or four times the amount of hours that that, that amount of, I don't want to think about the hourly when I break down to the final cost of the figure, but uh, I, I like doing it. It's a lot of fun working in three dimensions. That's awesome. That's awesome. I met you because you were working in two dimensions first, right? You're an artist by profession. You, you do a lot of uh, comics and that sort of thing, right? Uh, yeah. Writer and artist, I mean, not as known for the writing because I haven't done as much as I would like to, but recently I've I've been more engaged in that side of it as well. I started out in comics with the Dorothy Gale Journey to Oz series. For those of you who are listening and aren't familiar, it's a dark modern retelling of The Wizard of Oz. And that got two issues in, but we went on a hiatus when basically the distribution uh, thresholds from Diamond changed. The minimum orders went up and we just couldn't sustain the title based on the orders through that we were getting. So it, it was a great learning experience for me. And you did that through a publisher? Like, was it a creator-owned thing? Like... It was creator-owned. Uh, the, the, the publisher I went through, Jack Lake Productions, it was actually a happy accident the way it went down because they were producing the Classics Junior Illustrated relaunch books. So initially, I was just trying to get work in comics. I was just out of uh, college at the time looking for work in art. My preference was to work in comics. I'd gone to school for animation but wanted to do more of the storytelling and, and have more opportunity to work on more than just drawing a character over and over again in a specific motion. So I wanted to work as a colorist or a inker for that company. But he saw that I had some of these Wizard of Oz themed sketches and asked if I had a story for it, which I which I did. I whenever I come up with a character, I always mentally have a story in mind for it, like a different version from the original Wizard of Oz. So that's how that happened. So I ended up doing my own series when I wasn't even planning to. I thought that that would just be something eventually, maybe after I did some more original stuff that I would come back to later on. Like, So how did you find this guy or did he did he find you, your collaborator uh, on Journey to Oz? Uh, Jack uh, Jarvie, the president, I met him. He was set up at one of the early Paradise Toronto Comic Cons before they were sold to Wizards. So this was either... In 2002 or 2003 uh, at the exhibition, so I had my portfolio with me. As I said, I was just looking 
to do some, you know, the, the color restoration work and the ink restoration work, but uh, he saw the sketches and wanted to pursue a partnership project. So it was something of a self-published, but it was also done through an existing publisher. So it was a bit of an amalgam project. You were you're pretty lucky, too, that like a publisher would just sort of take you on based on the sketches and and want to do something with you and that kind of thing, like your as your first foray into into this sort of work. Yeah, that was, that was never the plan. Was I, I'd become interested in comics a couple of years prior to that. I mean, I'd grown up with them, but in terms of doing them for a living, I never thought about it until I my eyes got opened up to that world. And what I, again, was initially trying to do was get some experience, you know, doing the coloring or get some experience doing the inking, just so I can work under other people doing it in that medium, because I, I had had the animation training and stuff. And I know it's a completely different medium. I had taken comic book drawing classes uh, as a teenager, but I didn't feel that even like looking back now, I felt like at the time I was really lucky. But at the same time, it was a lot of learning as I go. Because you'd never done a sequential story before. No, I'd never did. I'd never done a sequential story. Uh, even when I wanted to do Dorothy Gale, like I did a test page, which was basically based on the fisherman and his wife, a fairy tale like that. That's what I was trying to pitch to him was like, let me just reinterpret some of the, you know, the, the grim fairy tales or some of the other things. But when he saw this, the stuff from the Wizard of Oz, he was like, well, I want to do a series with you. And, and of course, if someone's going to say to you, like, I'm in my 20s, someone's like, hey, do you want to write and illustrate your own series? What am I going to say? No, like, yeah. okay, okay, yeah, sure. I, I'll, I'll, a lot of pressure, terrifying looking back, but uh, exhilarating at the same time. So what got you into pursuing comics as a profession? Like, what brought you to that moment looking for color restoration work and inking work? What brought me into comics was when I grew up, I was only familiar, like, I didn't have, I grew up in Thornhill, which is north of Toronto. Okay. It's about... I'd say about 45 minutes separated. So people who live in Thornhill think that Young and Shepherd is downtown, which obviously for those who live in Toronto know that, you know, that's kind of not, not even, <laughs> it's like North York. So I grew up north of there even. Yeah. And the only comic stores I had were like, there was like one store at Centerpoint Mall called Oceana. They had like a comic rack and it was just Marvel and DC stuff. There wasn't like really any independent stuff. Okay. So at that time I thought, okay, it's just superhero stuff. I liked the superhero stuff when I was like 12, 13. Going into high school, I got really into Star Wars and stuff. So I got out of the superhero so I always thought to myself, okay, well, with comics, I, I unless I want to draw superhero stuff, that's all there is. Just before attending animation school, I got turned on to, and it was purely by accident, I think I was homesick, and on television was Comic Book Confidential, which was uh, done by uh, Ron Mann, I believe his name was. Uh, yeah, yeah, the documentary. Yeah, yeah. the documentary. So, so I got turned on. I started watching this because I was I'm like, okay, like I took some comic book drawing classes, as I said, on weekends. Uh, when I was in high school. So I, I took those and I was watching this documentary, but I'm seeing like not just superheroes, but there's the horror stuff, there's the science fiction. But then you, I saw, I got introduced to like the underground, uh, Robert Crumb. Robert Crumb. Yeah. Harvey P. Carr. And even like, and, and I think what clinched it for me was like seeing, um, Art Spiegelman. Like, oh my God, there's a guy who won a Pulitzer Prize with a, you know, with, with a, Graphic, and I didn't even know what a graphic novel was at that point when I saw it. And I was, this was, I was think, 
what, 19 or 20. I, I just knew there were comics. So as soon as I found out that there are all these different things you can do with comics, it wasn't just superhero stuff. Like, I guess I was a late bloomer to that. When you saw, like, Spiegelman, I mean, you grew up in a Jewish family in Thornhill kind of thing. That work is about the Holocaust and his father's experience, but, like, reinterpreted with, like, animals taking the place of uh, different characters did that speak to you as a as a jewish person as well culturally like this guy is the guy who won the pulitzer type of thing well it's it certain i certainly had a connection with it uh from a you know family religious standpoint yeah like my own family i'd say my grandparents were very fortunate in that both my grandparents came from poland but they moved to canada before world war ii oh okay i, I did ha- i did have a lot of friends who had family members who were in the war and stuff like that yeah. and, and went through the holocaust so i was it 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 did speak to me, you know, from from the cultural standpoint, having that connection, right. not as strongly, obviously, as it might have with someone uh, like even my wife, who has, you know, hol- Holocaust survivors in her family as well. Right. But for me, I didn't have that direct familial connection yeah. to it. But culturally, I understood the significance. Mm-hmm. So when you saw like that, another Jewish guy had done it and it wasn't superheroes that must have been pretty mind-blowing a little bit yeah no it it was neat i mean religiously speaking i i know that i know that a lot of creators in the end like there are a lot of jewish creators in the industry Mm -hmm. uh, obviously but from a family standpoint i was raised jewish i just i think at the age of 18 I, i just kind of became agnostic i just didn't really fully connect with the like any religion and i'm not gonna i'm not atheist i i I don't believe in nothing i believe i'm like there could be stuff out there i just don't cling to any specific thing but no i mean seeing uh judaism in comics like yeah i I do have a a connection to it just from again from a cultural standpoint because i was raised that way in terms of having a deep personal connection with it i don't want to pretend to say like oh yeah well if it's jewish i got to be all over that yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. honestly it's like oh cool it, it, like i was involved a couple of years ago in the jewish comics anthology yeah and when i was approached by them i had to say just so you're aware i'm non-practicing i don't want to give the impression that i'm just you know this beacon <laughs> of the jewish community yeah, yeah, yeah. working in comics so as long as I wasn't getting the job under false pretenses. That and they were it. okay with that. They were okay. Yeah. There were, there was actually a few creators on it who weren't Jewish at all. Yeah. They said more as long as that the content had some connectivity to Judaism and the culture and stuff. That's were, interesting. Like trying to connect to and interpret a culture that you don't necessarily belong to, like from their standpoint, that would be an interesting uh, challenge to tackle. I think. Well, a number of the creators I, I spoke to who who weren't Jewish on it, they 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 really enjoyed the experience yeah, yeah. because it was some something unfamiliar to them. Yeah, they were able to get you know a new insight, like a lot of a lot of folk tales and 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 different stories that aren't the common ones. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, most you know people outside of the religion are familiar with, as far as Judaism is concerned, they know Hanukkah. Yeah. And they know Passover, and yeah. and basically that's it. And the rest of the year, Jews just sort of sit around and not celebrate the the other holidays. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But before you like you got into comics, you went into animation school. Yes. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. that Wh- I, I why did you go there? Because as an artist who wanted to do storytelling at that time, this was back in two thousand one. That was really the only option. There weren't any comic book programs like running like they have that like at Max the Mutt. That's where I went to school. They now have a comic book program. And even during that time, they had people from the comic industry teaching storyboarding classes and stuff because they did 
overlap like right. they did like a lot of the comic professionals did work in animation when i went to max and Mutt, i wanted to work in comics but there was no there was no other form of education i could get just to work in comics unless i wanted to go to joe kubert school in new right. jersey which i just could not afford yeah yeah, yeah. and i i've looked into going to the joe kubert school and it's expensive and everything what got you into art in the first place i just always did it <laughs> nothing got me into it it's just when i was four my mom came home from work. This is the, the story. Like I used to, she used to have like old forms from, she worked CIBC. So she'd have like old bank forms around the house, like not completed ones, just like an old spreadsheet before computers were around. Yeah. So I just had like stacks of paper. And when I was being, you know, my, our living housekeeper, she'd watch me during the day. We had a lot of children's books. So I remember the first thing I ever remember drawing that she noticed was a Pac-Man storybook. And I still have it. I don't have the drawing, but I have the the book that I caught. So when she came home, I was four or five at the time, and she asked my our, our housekeeper, like, "Did he trace this?" Like, and she's like, "No, he just drew it." So I just kind of have always done it. Like, it's not. It's more of a compulsion than, than a passion. Did I'd your say. parents like encourage it once they figured out that you were into it? Yeah, yeah. I, I lived like I live with my mom, and she um she encouraged it. So that first drawing, anytime I drew something, she like put it in a little frame that said "My kid did this" kind of thing. Oh, okay, cool. And um nurtured it, but not but not in a pressuring way. Like I wasn't you know sort of saying like constantly told to draw. I just, I liked to draw and she was very encouraging while I did it. And throughout school, I, I just did it very casually. And as, as someone who teaches it now myself, I try to take that same approach. That's cool. So then you eventually were like, you know, I've been doing this all my life. I want to go into it as, as a profession. Yeah. I, I wanted to, like, as I said, when I found out the range of work that existed in comics and I'm like, yes, I, I can now tell whatever kind of story I want. Yeah. So I wanted to, to do that. I wanted to be able to basically be the, the writer and director of my own world and obviously, you know, illustrating it too from that standpoint. I mean, in terms of the stuff I've worked on, there's been a, I've developed certain projects where I'm like, okay, my own art style doesn't fit this project so i'll bring on another artist to develop it if it's something that they can do more comprehensively or more thoroughly or, the, or yeah whatever. just more with more expertise like yeah, they, they yeah. can do that style with more expertise which i'll think of like a story i'm like this is a great story for a style that i don't want to draw in right so i i, I want to do the outline and sometimes I'll, i was more like the publisher like i'll right. do the outline for it I'll bring in a more experienced writer and I'll bring in a more experienced artist with a more um, consistent, I, consistent, I guess is the way. Can you give me an example of like a project that's like that, that you were more like the publisher on? There were a couple of projects that I had in development um, that I did not take them to fruition only because at the time I was trying to get them in through Image or someone who was publishing creator own stuff. Right. Having self-published Dorothy Gale and knowing the amount of work that goes into that, the marketing side of it, not wanting to shoulder that on my own. Like, I mean, not that I have a problem with doing the work, but there's only so much one person could do in those days. And this is before web comics were as prevalent like web comics were just starting around that time like 2003 ish type thing yeah yeah this this was well this was um even even after though like i mean when i was doing dorothy gale that was 2000 
2004 to 2006, okay. web comics were just starting to take off, but you still didn't have Kickstarter. You still didn't have print on demand services. So you would have to like finance the stuff on your own. So I, I said to myself after Dorothy Gale, I'm like, you know what? I need to make sure that I have financial, you know, stability in this project. So it doesn't meet the same fate because ultimately that's what happened when we couldn't get the orders up from Dorothy Gale, essentially because we couldn't get into Diamond, which is the main distributor. We couldn't afford to do it. Like there, there wasn't going to be enough to do it. And I, and I worked on Dorothy Gale pretty much full time, but I just couldn't afford to do it anymore. So I decided instead, let me bring these other projects. One of them was a project that actually looking back on it is probably for the best that it didn't work out, which was basically, it was like a, a Donald Trump based superhero. <laughs> And it was, it was based on The Apprentice. It was kind of a satire of The Apprentice. It was called The Sidekick. And it was just basically looking for a new sidekick. And it's a good idea. But yeah, it's, it's a, it was a good idea then when The Apprentice was rel- more relevant. Yeah. And before Donald Trump was doing what he is currently doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I'm not going to get in any more into that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so at the time, like, we had a lot of people potentially interested in it. Like, we met with, you know, toy companies and stuff like that because we, we did some great designs and stuff for it, too. Like, I hired a, I hired a, a character artist to develop it. I hired a, a TV, like, an experienced or an up-and-coming an up and TV writer to flesh out the script. And in the end, like, it just, over time, it things just... We couldn't get it together for it. Wow. And there was another one which was in the vamp, like it was a vampire themed story. So how do you go from, you're basically like learning on the job with Dorothy Gale, but then like you become sort of like the facilitator, like you're networking with the publisher and you're, you're getting people in front of things because the difference between you and a lot of the other self-published people that I see, like they'll self-publish their comics but they feel intimidated by like to take a meeting and that kind of thing. Whereas you, you seem like you're you're meeting with people, you're trying to get publishers and that and that kind of thing. So where do you where does that come from? Where does the sort of I don't know, I want to call it like business acumen? You've always sort of had it. I don't want to say it's genetic. Like I, I have entrepreneurs <laughs> well no, in my family, yeah. uh my my parents ran a a carpet business for years so i sort of had that i grew up with that sort of mentality around me Mm -hmm. like in terms of like starting your own business my older brother in high school started like a cookie delivery business and stuff like that like found a wholesaler and stuff i was surrounded by people growing up that were starting businesses on a regular basis so it's kind of second nature just because it's familiar to me. So I can understand. And age wasn't a restriction if your, if your brother was doing it. Like you didn't feel intimidated by like, I'm too young to be doing this or anything like, or anything like that. I felt the experience was definitely the thing. Like even as I mentioned with Dorothy Gale, it was terrifying. Like doing that when, when it was came down to like putting it on the page and trying to get it out there, knowing that people are going to be reading this and you, and you get those early, early days sort of, you, you do your beginner things. You do your, you, your, what the things that show. Well, when you go to convention, like for instance, a lot of, and I'll see this now, a lot of people go to conventions for the first time trying to sell their own book and they will apologize for any little mistake in the book. They'll say like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I, I messed up on that panel. Right. And, and I think what happened was I, I met Jim Lawson who was working on a, 
TMNT at the time. I met him at Fan Expo 2005, and I remember he he actually came over. He was interested. He actually bought, you know, copies of my books, my first two Dorothy Gale books. And immediately, like an idiot, I start apologizing for all the things that was wrong. And he just cut me off. And he's like, let me just give you some advice. Like, never, never apologize for your work. Like, never, you know, just, you did it, let it speak for itself. Yeah. That stuck with me. And and I think a lot of it was wanting to be perfect and feeling as though anything I did, I had to do it the best I could. I was dedicated to getting the quality out there. Because I'm seeing all this polished stuff, but then looking back on it now, I'll, I'll look at like Marvel books done by some very well-known people and I'll notice, you know, mistakes here and there, like anatomy isn't perfect always or the back, like there was a color mix up. And I, I said, you know, it's art. You don't have to be perfect. Right. Just get, it's more important, I think, to get your story out there. Uh, in front of people so they can enjoy it. And and recently what's reinvigorated me in terms of, you know, enthusiasm and also confidence is seeing those early TMNT books mm-hmm. that uh, Eastman and Laird did, which yeah. is huge inspiration because I saw them and I'm like, this isn't highly polished stuff, right? but it is a lot of fun. And you can tell they had a lot of fun doing that and it comes across. And as, as a reader, I'm saying I'm like, okay, there's a bit of an anatomy thing here, but I don't care. Because it's like there's an exa- there's a huge exaggeration here. And taking the classes with Ty Templeton, he he said something to me as well. I was taking his anatomy class, which was basically uh, a confident incorrect line. Yeah, is better than a a non confident correct line. Right. If you're gonna do it wrong, do it with enthusiasm. And like you know, Eastman and Laird. I mean, t- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The thing that sold it was the strong story, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you have a strong story, your art can be not very good. Like, look at, I don't know, what would be an example? Like, Happiness and Cyanide. It's basically like a strip, but, like, the actual drawing isn't isn't really what you would call, like, super, super good. It's just, you know, it's just uh, stick figures and stuff. Yeah. It it does its job, and I mean, right. that's all any story needs to do, and that's the most important thing. I find the emphasis tends to be early on on, like, the art's got to look really good. Like, it doesn't matter for anyone doing books and stuff. Like, the, the story tends to come secondary. They're like, well, the story, as long as it looks cool, as long as the cover looks good and stuff like that, but really what holds the people's attention is whether the story's good. So I've been focusing a lot on just becoming a better storyteller, a better writer, making sure that that side is taken care of. I, I'm I'm confident enough in my ability to do art that I feel I can interpret the story to communicate what I mean, but that foundation needs to be there. Like if, if the story is no good, it doesn't matter how well it's drawn, basically. Right. Like if I do it photorealistic, Awesome stuff. If the story sucks, no one's going to read issue two. So after Dorothy Gale, where did you go from there? What happened next? After Dorothy Gale, I kind of floated around for a while. I did some short stories. I did some anthologies. Uh, The first anthology I did after Dorothy Gale was quite a few years later in 2010. I had like a few years of just doing cons, doing the fan art thing, which is becoming a hot topic these days. Became a bit of a crutch, but I did, um, Scott Nicholson was, did a, a book under hot, haunted computers 
and it was Grave Conditions was the book. And I did a Brian Keene, who's a very well-known author in the States. He did a short story. So I remember going on DeviantArt. No, it wasn't DeviantArt. Sorry. It was a digital webbing Okay. to their um, just for hire section. And I saw there was a horror anthology and horror was one of these things that jumped out. So I got involved in that project, sent in a portfolio he he liked uh, Scott Nicholson, the editor, like my stuff. He paired me. He said, I have a story uh, that like no one has been able to deliver on. Would you be interested? So I said, okay, no problem. Uh, so it was a story for the Grave Conditions Anthology by Brian Keene. And it was, it was a great experience because the author, like I, I saw the ending, like mm-hmm. it was written, if it was written as a short story, it wasn't originally written for a comic. Yeah. So I felt that the ending needed to have more of a visual punch. So I made a suggestion thinking to myself, like I'm either going to get fired for this, like just for even for suggesting it. Cause you never know how people are going to respond to a suggestion for a change. Oh, I'm just going to stick my neck out. And I made a suggestion, like, can we make the ending instead of having it like this, like have more of a visual punch to the ending that that will drive the point home a bit more and they liked the idea i'm like oh good they're not gonna they're not gonna fire me and blacklist me and the spread my name around so i did that so how did it how did it turn out like did you do a comic of the short story or did you just do like an illustration at the end no it was it was a it was a comic it was a it was a 12 it was a 10 page or 12 page i couldn't remember but it was uh it was called burying betsy and what i can do is actually send you links to the images and stuff after that's awesome after. we'll definitely put it on our facebook page yeah send that over i might have some of my my portfolio on my website too uh following that i, I took on the role as publisher for um the anything ghost uh, graphic novel ah, which um that. you may be familiar with because you actually wrote a review for. yeah i i reviewed anything ghost for broken pencil magazine which is a diy indie arts and culture uh zine magazine they they basically profile like the zine industry and any diy art stuff and anything ghost i think you told me it was like based on like a podcast yeah yeah it started it started as a podcast that oddly enough i would listen to it while working on uh coloring like eventually with jack lake once dorothy gale stopped right (laughs) for lack of a better word I was doing color restoration, so I forgot all about that. Like, oh, what were you doing since Dorothy Gale? I colored about, you know, 20 to 25, like, fairy tale comics and stuff like that. Like, just digitally coloring them and stuff. And while I was doing that, it was it was tedious work. Like, I was just basically, you know, like, looking at the original book and doing paint-by-number kind of stuff in Photoshop. Yeah. So while listening to that, you know, working for 18 hours a day, I needed to have something on in the background. First, it was like movie soundtracks but you can only listen to the star wars soundtrack like i think seven or eight times before it's you need to turn it off (laughs) right right i love john williams but like listening it to that many times over and over i needed a break (laughs) so i switched to dvds okay of movies but switching dvds was disruptive and then there were times where i'd be in the middle of a page working on a particularly challenging panel with like lots of foliage and stuff and there would be complete silence because I haven't switched the disc over yeah. or worse. It's on loop. And I've just now listened to Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire for the fourth consecutive time in the background, yeah, 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 yeah. like working on this page. So podcasting, I started listening to anything ghost and it would like scare the crap out of me. Cause it's like real people's ghost stories that they're sending in. So it's like three in the morning and I'm listening to people's paranormal stories 
And I came up with this idea. I'm like, these stories, I'm picturing them in my head. Like, this would be good to turn into, like, an EC Comics-style anthology. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So I, I came up with this. And what I did was I, I I sent an email. And this is what I love about the new, you know, world of social networking and stuff. I, I, I had them on Facebook, like, as a like. So I sent them a message, I think, through Facebook or found their email address. And I said to the, the host of the show, like, hey, you don't know who I am, but I want to do a book featuring the stuff. I know a lot of artists who would love to do it. We can work something out with the people who've submitted the stories, get them a page of original art or something, and they'll they'll see their story, you know, in comic form. Right. What do you think? And he was like, I don't know. I I don't want to have to do a lot of work. And I promised him, like, I will handle everything. So this is me biting off, like, the entire project. <laughs> and it actually, um, it was, it was an interesting experience, but it, it would, this was another time that I learned that since I was publishing the book, like, I, I did the cover for it as well. And I actually illustrated one of the stories. But looking back on it, like, even just after I finished, I'm like, okay, next time I am publishing something, just as, like, and I'm overseeing it, I will not be participating creatively right. because I, I just don't think it's fair to the other creators on the book, like the other artists that they're sending me the work and I can tell them to do revisions on things. But then when I'm doing things, I can take whatever shortcut because I, I don't have to answer to anyone Yeah, because Alex wall, who's the, the host of anything goes like I'm sending him stuff and he's just like, yeah, it all looks great. Like he doesn't really have. Yeah. Cause he doesn't have, he can't tell. Yeah. He doesn't, he just, he's just not from the comic world he's to him it's like yeah it's all good like it's all good stuff so basically the onus is on me to go back to like a lot of great artists on like vince sunico from spence pencil from spent pencils working on it kent burles who's uh does a lot of great fan like he did phenomenal job on that story like he was when he sent me i remember he did a gothic style horror story it was based on a true story but it took place in england that happened to be in this like gothic style old mansion Mm -hmm. and the job he did on it he he pretty much captured exactly what i had in mind like when i approached him for it it was just perfect like he sent me the thumbnails i remember and i'm like yes do this no revisions just do it that's awesome yeah that was that was fun so i've i've took the role as publisher for that one was it successful I'd say it was a critical success, not necessarily a financial one, because the podcasting audience likes things for free. Right. Like, they like to listen to the They're already downloading show. a free podcast. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's entertainment for them. So, we got the word out there, and unanimously, like, I mean, reviews were the scariest thing when I did Dor- Dorothy Gale. Like, forgetting about actually getting up the nerve to publish something. And then you start Googling yourself to look for reviews and then you find a bad one. And it's just like, it doesn't matter what nice things people say about the book. It just takes one negative thing. And then you get angry at everyone else who said it was good because you think they're just placating you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone who read it says that they really enjoyed it. They liked it and they want to see another one. And I'm like, yeah, maybe if we kickstart it, we'll do it. Right. Yeah, I consider it a successful project as far as I, I I was proud to put my name on it and everyone who took part in it enjoyed the enjoyed it as well. But the listening audience didn't really do they buy it as much or they they did and it was catered to them specifically because it was called the Anything Goes. So it was yeah. tailored to that audience. Right. And when we started the Facebook page, we got, you know, we got a few hundred people on there and I was expecting that a large percentage of those people would end up buying the book right but lesson learned at launch time 
<laughs> we got about, I think about 25% of the people on the Anything Goes page actually committed. And this is like, I think, right around the time where Kickstarter is starting to come in. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so for something like this in the future, this is a good thing to get Kickstarted to make sure that we do have the backing for it. Because again, it is for a specific audience. And you probably would have Kickstarted it had Kickstarter been a little bit more mature at the t- at the time, like more of a thing that people were doing yeah. at the time. No, I, I would have. I, I'm still a little nervous about crowdfunding projects. Like I'm, 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 I'm holding off. Like I've got a lot of stuff in development and I'm holding off on it until the work is basically done because I hear so many horror stories about people who earn a ton of money and they just don't deliver the goods. And it just, and it just hurts the entire community, like the entire industry. Actually, when someone very reputable, especially when someone, a well-known creator says like, oh, I'm going to do this, and then they don't do it. So someone who's relatively unknown, such as myself, if I try to do it, I can't expect people to invest in me. And and I feel that extra pressure that if life happens, and I'm not blaming these people, if something happened in their life that affected their ability to do it, and that could have been the case, there's been so many instances of this happening, or there's been other instances where certain creators have just said like, oh, I've decided I'm not going to do it anymore, or whatever. And it's just this attitude that kind of like, wow... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, you have a pretty strong, principled way of doing things, particularly in business. And I got to, and I got to know that kind of when you were running the Temple of Toys. So after anything ghost, I mean, were you a customer of the comic book lounge and gallery back then? Or because I remember I met you during a like a signing or something at the comic book lounge. That would be the gallery. Anything Ghost uh, launch, actually, the the, the right. Halloween launch in 2012. But you were you partners with Kevin back then? Were you doing the Temple of Toys back then, or is this before that? This was before. This was uh, about a year, and I'd say a year and a bit before, because that was late 2012, and we didn't open Temple of Toys until 2013. And what had happened was, um, yeah, how did that happen? Like Temple of Toys happened first when. Um, my brother and I, he wanted to sell his collection. Like he had collected a lot of these He-Man figures and he needed to make some space for things Right. at home. So he's like, well, where do I sell this stuff? And I'm like, well, there's toy shows and stuff. We can set up a toy shows. So we did some research. So we started setting up a toy shows. And at that time, like the collector market was really hot in those days. And people were going to the shows and just spending a lot of money. I mean, we weren't, when we were pricing stuff, we were, trying to price fair like we weren't trying to gouge people we when were, was this like this was 2000 i think this was like early 2013 actually like we, okay. we we went from like nothing like zero business to store within the year like we started with just doing toy shows and i remember kevin was looking for someone to like because i know that one of the the partners from the lounge at that time had left the business and kevin was looking for you know, opportunities to help with the, the lease. Yeah. If you, if you want to get more details about Kevin Boyd, who Shane is talking about, uh, go to our a previous episode, the episode just before this one, and you'll, you'll get his side of the story of the comic book lounge and gallery and, uh, and how everything developed, but go on because you became once gorilla printing left, which was his previous tenant, you became the new 
person in that space, right? Well, we were there was overlap. We were there. Gorilla was still there when we moved in. Okay. Like Gorilla was at the the back area, which would then later become backspace when the lease expired in 2014. Right. Essentially, Kevin was looking for opportunities to, you know, help out with the space basically because he was alone there now. Right. Um and and he'll as I said, like previous episode, I'm sure he'll have gone into detail. Yeah, he does. About sure. that. I was saying like if we were to sublease part of the space from him, like I I asked him like for a portion, you know, a portion of the rent, would he be interested in that in that arrangement? And he said, yeah, sure, because it, the, the businesses worked hand in hand together. So Yeah, because you need, like, you know, comics to get people in the door. It became, like, less about comics and more about paraphernalia in, yeah. in this day and age, like, what people are buying, right? It's, it started to transition, and we didn't want to do something that was just like other people were doing. We tried to have a strong focus on the vintage stuff, so a strong focus on 80, 70s to 90s stuff. It became increasingly more difficult to track that stuff down because when they announced the new Star Wars movie, then anything, which is, if you're talking 70s toys, you're basically talking Star Wars. So, okay, well, we have to rewind it back a little bit because as far as you left it, you were just doing like table shows and toy shows with your brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then how did the store happen? Like you you just started making enough money that you thought... Well, Kevin has offered me this opportunity and maybe we can turn the toy business into an actual yeah. brick and mortar place. Yeah, ba- basically exactly like, like Kevin, okay. as, I, as I mentioned, he yeah. was looking for pe- someone to fill the gap. And I said, hey, we've got, we want to expand into a brick and mortar because we've got a lot of inventory that we picked up through things and the shows were proving to be very uh, lucrative. Did your brother come in with you on it or? With the store? Yeah. The the business was partnered. It was kind of split in terms of responsibility. We had four partners total. So there was myself, uh, Sari, who's uh, my wife. And there was uh, Corey, my brother, and uh, Sean, who's best friend growing up. So the four of us were together in the business with the understanding being that we would be responsible for running the store aspect and they would be running the uh, the shows. Okay. So, because both of them had full-time jobs as well, so they couldn't. And meanwhile, I thought to myself, like, oh, I'll just do my freelance work. I'll bring in my, you know, tablet and stuff to the store. With and my artists were already doing that at that store. Like, like Chris Yao yeah. was like an artist in residence there. So it's pretty uh, standard that you would probably think that, that you could like go in and, and do your work while you're doing the store kind of thing, right? Yeah, no, I was able to get my, my stuff set up uh in the in the store and and work on things like work work on a lot of stuff uh while for art clients and stuff like that while the store was open because i mean during weekdays and stuff it wasn't that busy right during the day until we'd get a few people during the lunch hour and stuff that was another learning experience yeah because i mean running a store is hard is tough like how what was your what was your feeling about it like did did it start out good or like how how did it work it took us a while to get into it. I mean, our expectations were a little higher because we thought to ourselves like, Oh, well we just, you know, to cover rent and expenses or whatever, we just need to sell this much per day, which was all very low amount. But then when we actually opened, we, we realized very quickly, like, Oh my God, like not a lot of like retail, not a lot of people do come in. Like if you're not in a mall, Right, And I had worked retail in a mall for many years. So I'm thinking to myself like, okay, well going on that experience, I thought, uh, college, like in the middle of Little Italy, we'd get more traffic than we did. 
So uh, it fell short of our expectations, but it picked up enough that when the lease renewal came around, we decided to get brazen and say, okay, Gorilla wanted to leave. So we were prepared to take on their area to run as an event space because we have experience running events and I have experience uh, running programs and stuff like that. Yeah, doing like the pop final workshops exactly, and those sorts yes. of things. Okay, so so how did that work out? Not well. <laughs> okay, what happened? We did everything we could to get the word out. Um, like from a marketing standpoint, we had a lot of, you know, ideas in place. Like we did video game nights, like the retro replay where right. we had a lot of like Nintendo and stuff like that and the older games. And we would launch it as a Facebook event. We get like a ton of people saying they were going to come and and this was like also learning about the nature of facebook events which is like oh when 25 people say they're going to come be happy if you get 10 right so there was a lot of that when we tried to run uh classes i mean i've been running uh kids programming and just instructional uh things like teaching art and drawing and like sculpting animation i've been teaching that stuff for like 15 years and i actually ran an after school programming company for quite a while and that was very successful until some political stuff happened that made it difficult to get into schools so something out of my control so i'd been doing that for a long enough time that i had a handle on it but then when we brought it into that area again it was a lot of people saying like yes we want to do it but then not committing to it so we were just having a hard time getting people to actually commit and what didn't help was that there was a lot of ttc closures tons of construction was popping up in toronto like the the uh, the gardener expressway project like there were times where our entire street where the store was was just completely inaccessible with like no notice whatsoever. Like they'll announce before the weekend that like, oh, there's going to be no streetcar service on the street. So there was just a lot of things that made it difficult to get people regularly coming in. And Kevin said that in the previous episode is that like it was a really horrible winter. There was tons of construction. His his partner had died and he, he didn't have the energy and that kind of thing. You know, they were running events before, like through the comic book lounge and gallery. And he talks about that in the previous episode. But he said that he didn't have the same energy after after his partner Deborah died. And he also said that you guys had a different approach. Like you had a you had an event space, but you were charging money for people to use the event space, right? So, so which is good because I mean, you rent the space, you can run it however you want, and that kind of thing. But do you think that that business model maybe have, maybe might have contributed to it? Or well, or, if we weren't charging money. I mean, there would you be no be business. To, there'd anyway. be no point, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, essentially, we'd be paying rent to let people use it for free. And I mean, understanding Kevin's approach to his events would be that when people were at the events at the store, they'd be they, buying they'd comics be buying too. Comics. Yeah, right. so they, and you they, didn't have that. You just had the event space. No, we, we had the event space, but we had the toy store at the front. But yeah. There's not necessarily an overlap. So right. when people are coming in and playing video games for a few hours, they're not necessarily going to come out and buy, buy an action figure. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and that was Whereas problem, for Kevin, yeah. they were buying comics at, yeah, at yeah. the time, right? A lot of the people we bring in for our events would buy comics, comics from Kevin. Exactly, and that's fine. Exactly. I mean, we weren't... With the toy business, it was, collect, like, it was mainly focused on the collectible stuff. So we really banked on our uh, regulars like it yeah. wasn't the type of business because it was retro toys like you exactly. weren't you weren't a toy store you were bringing in retro toys custom toys like like give give us sort of rundown of the sort of stuff that you offered a lot of he-man type stuff okay. a lot of 
older Star Wars things in the store, like Thundercats, things like that. And you had like old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys. And yeah, stuff yeah, like old, that. old turtles. So, so it was a very niche collector market. Right. A few like, and that's what happened after a few months of being open. We got some regular customers who liked dealing with us because of the fact that we were fair. Like when we price things that we would look up what it's going for on eBay and make sure to, like we're not pricing at eBay prices. Right, right. We're making, like we're giving you a good deal, but we have to make something on it too. So when we had our regulars, it was good. But the nature of the sort of things that we do, like unlike comics, with comics you have pull lists, so you have people coming in regularly to get certain things. Right. But with toy collectors, it doesn't work that way. Toy collectors collect certain lines, so... When the lines come out for toys, they come out all at once. Right. And if they're looking for specific collectibles, you'll get them like, you know, one at a time. And and that schedule could be once a month, once every couple months, because with toys, there's a lot more uh, delays, like if manufacturing, because we were starting to order new stuff because we had to just to widen our, our customer base. Like we couldn't thrive just on the vintage stuff because when we had the vintage stuff, it sold very quickly. Yeah. But we were catering to regulars with that. So we needed something to appeal to the casual. That would just come in. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and that and I think that was the difficult thing to us because trying to appeal to that audience, we are competing with everyone else doing that in the city. And there are so many stores carrying that. And with geek culture as this, called now being becoming more and more mainstream that merchandise is like everywhere it is so tough and everyone is looking for you to price yourself like oh i saw it at toys r us for this much it's like well toys r us is paying less yeah they're selling prices less than our than our wholesale and we cannot afford to do that you couldn't sustain the store just on the collector's market like the vintage the vintage toy kind of thing like you needed to like branch out a little bit a little bit a little bit more i'm not gonna say we can't do it based on the collector marketer or we couldn't do it based on the collector market alone i just think there were opportunities that we weren't aware of at that time or just didn't take advantage of there were a lot of challenges like obviously i have to assume you know, at least a degree of responsibility. We tried to attract collectors as much as possible, but a lot of collectors at the same time, they're looking to get a very low price on things. Like they're, they're not looking to spend more than anywhere else. Like it doesn't matter. Like you say, Oh, I can get this much for an action figure. We also need to build repeat business too. So dealing with collectors specifically, it's difficult. You got to find that middle ground. We got to charge enough that we're making obviously our money, but we also have to make sure that the prices are enticing enough for people to continually wanting to shop with us. I mean, part of the advantage that we held too is the atmosphere. We were a very welcoming store. We would, you know, engage people. People love, you know, geeking out over old toy stuff. Like we can have conversations and that was cool. Like people, when we were closing, they said, oh, we're going to be sad to see you go. I liked hanging out at the, the store. It's like, well, I'm going to miss hanging out at the store too, but I'm not going to miss paying to hang out at the store. To hang out at the store, yeah. yeah. You're not supposed to pay to hang out at the store. You're supposed to, you know, pay to sell things and, and, and make a profit. And hanging yeah. out at the store is like a byproduct of that. And it, and it just became, like the hottest toy lines, it just became, with the newer stuff, to get in, it became too difficult to get that in because with distribution issues and stuff like that, because we were a smaller store, we didn't get as high priority when it came to ordering things. Right. So that meant, like, if we ordered the Star Wars Black Series, which is uh, the six-inch figures, which are considered, like, 
probably the the hottest in Star Wars toys right now, other than the vintage stuff. We would order entire waves and just not receive them at all, or they would like short ship us. So I would be like below the pre-orders on it Uh. and didn't even. So with the pre-orders covered, I didn't even have enough extra, even though I ordered extra to put out on the shelf after. So the store, we had to constantly keep buying things to fill the shelves. Yeah. But they weren't coming in. Right, right. So we that didn't sucks. have stuff to sell. That really times, sucks, so. man. Would you ever do it again? And if you would, how would you do it differently? If I won the lottery or came into, like, if one of my hopefully in, develop, in development projects, like, came into so much money that... I, I had a few million to spare like, and just put into that business. Like you became the artist on like a nineties X-Men level selling comic book or something or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if yeah, I was yeah. like, if I became like, we came like the next TMNT, like knock on wood with a series, like if that ever happened, like I'm still passionate about toys. And I found that once the store closed, I was enjoying collecting. Like I still do actively seek things out for people. Like, mm a lot of the regulars I'm friends with uh, who I met through the store right? and they request things from me and I, and I still hunt things down. I'm friends with other retailers that I can get things through them and they give me a bit of a discount because I'm basically giving them my customers. Like it's still a lot of fun for me. I don't have enough room to collect for myself. So it's fun to collect for other people. And so it's almost like a home business kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I, I wouldn't even call it a business at this point. Cause like for the amount of people I'm still doing it for, I'm not really making much. I'm just doing it more as like favors for friends. And my reward for it is the retailers that I work with, they're friends of mine. So I get my toys at cost from them for my own collection. Plus it's the thrill of the hunt. Yes, exactly. Right. For looking for things and stuff. Having the store closed and that financial burden no longer there, I'm able to enjoy that a lot more. Like back at like, I started to, you know, kind of resent toys <laughs> at a point when it's just sort of when when you start to get into like what's involved in it and like I see something announced and I'm like, yeah, but they're not going to ship it on time or they're going to short ship me on it. So <laughs> I'm starting to think of all the negative business associations I have with the toys that got to the point of like, I don't even want to see what's coming out because I'm in order and it's not going to come in. So, yeah, so now that that's done, I can just look at it and enjoy it for what it is again. And you're actually responsible for getting me into toys a little bit more than I was. Like, when I started dating uh, the person that I'm now living with, I'm like, oh, I'm a comic fan, but don't worry. Like, I don't (laughs) don't collect toys, so it's totally under control. So this is me. But then the 1966 Batman Migos came out, and I started collecting those, and then... The Batman the Animated Series figures came out, and your store, Temple of Toys, was the first store that I that I saw them in, and start and I started buying them a little bit from you. So, and I know that you're a huge fan yeah. of Batman the Animated Series, so you sort of like fanned the flames of encouragement for me. So, which is good, you know. And now I'm collecting this line of toys. What is it about this particular line of toys? that you like so much like what do you like about batman the animated series that makes you collect this line of toys my my animation background makes me very specific about accuracy to the show okay so when i see actually like when i see a figure based on an established film or animation property that doesn't look on model which is called for 
those of you listening who aren't familiar as much with animation on model just basically means accurate to the the actual model sheets the design sheets right that they're based on so when this series was announced and previewed i was like oh my god they look exactly like the cartoon they look right out of the show right and i had collected all the vintage ones all the the 90s versions which i kept in the package because they're worth significantly more in the package and i couldn't bring myself around to opening them if i knew they were worth that like i am an opener like first and foremost i just want to get that out, of, out there right now like i'm not someone who's like oh i i'm I, I want it to be you know sealed in the box but when i discover something in my collection happens to be worth like significantly more than i paid for it i was just like i can't justify opening it but what i can do is sell it for around what it's worth now knowing that i'm going to you know, make a profit and use that money to buy the note, the new ones so I can open all those and just play them. Yeah. So I, as long as I can parlay that and, and what you said earlier, by the way, about, you know, your significant other now has a scapegoat basically. Uh, and I'm probably, you're not the only one. I have several, you know, husbands, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, significant others who like, probably hate my guts because i i'm i'm effective at getting other people enthusiastic about uh, certain <laughs> toys because yeah. the pic i, I think because i post my collection right, pictures which and- are awesome like i your your collections it's something that like i want to aspire to be but no i can never really achieve real realistically and something that i probably wouldn't want to actually achieve for practical reasons because people would start looking at me weird and i don't have enough space and it would it would overrun my house that kind of thing but you you have like you have your your ghostbusters collection and your alien collection and your batman animated series collection and they're all properly put together and you have the display cases that everybody kind of wants if they're going to collect toys and that kind of thing right so that's also part of it tell me about how you got into this whole toy collecting thing i loved toys my entire life to this day toys r us probably gives me as much joy to see the outside that it did when i was like seven or eight years old and just like going in there uh, when Sari and I go to the mall, there's a Toys R Us. She knows I have to go in, and she knows there's an option that she doesn't have to go in with me. And I don't, I don't even necessarily have to buy anything. I just need to go in and like bask, like ah, Toyland. Yeah. So it's always something. And actually, toys are what got me more into comics than anything. Okay, when I was like twelve or thirteen. I didn't know anything about the X-Men until Toy Biz started making the X-Men figures in the 90s, which was just before the animated series. Okay. Was, but was, they were based on the animated, the X-Men animated series, right? I don't know that they were based specifically on... No, because they were before the animated series. Because I know that when the X-Men animated series started, I was excited. But I learned about the characters from the back of the file cards. Oh. Because this was like 92, 93. So still before internet is widespread at that time so i couldn't research the characters online and this is when i started buying comics because i had the toys so i started buying x-men comics because i want to read about the characters they were just such a diverse lineup but growing up ninja turtles huge ninja turtle collection huge thundercats like these are all things And, and, and i'm thrilled now that as an adult like not only are these things once again becoming popular but through the art side of things where i've done the conventions over the years i've managed to like meet instrumental people 
and connect with them from various things. So I've like met almost all the main cast from Star Wars. I've met Kevin Eastman a couple of years ago in uh, Niagara. Wow. And, and and like I did a fan art piece from from Ninja Turtles that I was selling at the show. And I remember what happened. Someone came over to my table and they're like, I have a message from Kevin Eastman. My first thought is like, oh, no, I'm going to get sued. Right. But it was like, no, he, he wanted me to let you know that like this is really awesome. So I got a compliment from someone on that. From Thundercats, Larry Kenny, the voice of Lion-O on the show. Like, I met him at a show a couple of years ago, and I did a Lion-O piece, like, as part of that show. And I ended up adding him on Facebook and stuff, and we was talking. And I remember the following June, my birthday that year, he was the first person to wish me happy birthday. And I'm like, if I can go back to my seven-year-old self, self and tell tell myself that this is going to happen, he'd probably crap his pants. So how did you get into like all these cartoons and TV shows? Like, were you, were you sort of an indoor kid growing up and, and you, you watched a lot of TV and went to a lot of movies or. I was a big Saturday morning cartoon kid. I wouldn't say I was an in, indoor kid. I just so mean much. someone who, who like watches TV and reads more than they go outside to play kind of thing. Actually, I had a lot of friends on my street who were into like Ninja Turtles too, so they would like bring theirs over. Oh. Uh, admittedly though, like when it came to playing with the toys, I preferred to do it myself just because I'd come up with, this is the geekiest thing. I would take all of, I was into wrestling. Right. I would take all of the figures from like Ninja Turtles, from Cops. You remember that, like that show? The like, cybernetic. Yes, the uh, fighting op- crime in the future. Future, time. yeah, is, is like C O P S acron- acronym. Yeah. yeah, okay. I would take the Cops figures, the He Man figures. I would take the Thundercats, and I created like a wrestling federation with them. And I think I had storylines going on in my head and I would actually like commentate them That's awesome. in the basement. And my mom would be like, what are you doing? And I'd be like all embarrassed, like nothing. Like yeah. my brothers are upstairs, you know, playing Sega Genesis hockey. And I just have, like, I had the wrestling ring and they would all fight each. And I had like these elaborate storylines going on for years going. And, and then I remember like I broke the champion figure, it's like, oh, no. Well, because the reason I ask is because your toy collection now is really specific. Like, you you collect Alien, and that's it. And then you collect Ghostbusters, and that's it. So there's, like, a Ghostbusters section and a Batman section. This is just from what I've seen. So maybe I'm incorrect. It's just from what I've seen. You're not all over the place. You're very specific about the sort of things that you actually commit to buying toy-wise, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a collector who is a completionist, uh, who needs to have like every figure for, like even from the new Batman animated figures, I am passing on certain ones that are coming out. Like the, they had the Roxy Rocket that came out a couple months ago. And I'm like, she appeared for like two minutes in an episode. I don't care about that character enough to need her in my collection. What you're saying, true to a degree, like I do have certain, I don't collect something unless I can make a nice display for it. Okay. And I am also limited on space and I'm also understanding of the fact that if I start to invade other spaces in the house, Siri isn't going to be happy about it. Right. So, unfortunately, we have shared fandoms. So, I mean, if I can get away with certain uh, other fandoms, like if I got something cool from Harry Potter, 
that would be more acceptable than than building on the alien stuff. But even with the alien stuff, there was just I remember the power loader was something that as a kid I never got that from the Kenner line. Right. But NECA just released it with the Queen. Once I got my eggs to fill out that uh, the the hit the, the face hugger eggs to fill out the rest of that scene, yeah. then I'm I'm pretty much done with Alien until the diecast NECA ships come out later in the year. So your collection becomes like a recreation of the scene. Yeah. Of particular, like whatever scene from a movie that you love, you want to recreate it, you recreate it with your toys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I created the, the scene between Ripley and the queen alien uh, because I got the power loader. I've got to do that. Even though that figure is like the power loader getting Ripley's hands into the, the control mechanisms is like, forget it. It's not ever happening. I, I invented new swear words that night trying to do it. The hand, like NECA designs these ball joints in the wrist to be tiny. So when I put them in the, the, the handle, they came out. So I'm like, forget it. She's not holding the handles. I'll just rest them against there. I'll fake it. But yeah. uh, yeah, every, every toy section I have, like the Ghostbuster setup I have is just, you know, I got the stay puff in the middle and I've got the different film versions uh, on there too. But yeah, everything I do in sections and my Thundercats shelf, I have to, uh, refrain from ordering the Thundercats Mattel figures that have come out this year because of the fact that I don't have room. Yeah. And the toy collection now, it's kind of on hold because of the, not just because I, I'm out of space, but the exchange has gone up on a lot of things. So it's just not a good time to be buying stuff right now because it's a lot more expensive. Right, right. But Batman the Animated Series, they're continue that you just emailed me a article about all the other stuff that they're coming out with so there's always temptation how do you stay away from temptation batman is the exception batman is the one that we have negotiated that i am allowed to (laughs) to complete that set okay and unless like with other things a bit but it's true though i don't like i'm currently you see my collection i am maxed out for space like i don't have any room it has almost started to get to the point like because you know i do the sculpting right i do the the art the the comic stuff i just don't have room for any other stuff without starting to get onto workspaces and then i'm gonna just look like a hoarder at that point and your your comic stuff is like how you make a living right yeah, the, the comics, uh, it's starting to get back into that now. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I was in a bit of a, a lull for the last few years. Like since the, the Dorothy Gale thing, I've just been more or less working on a lot of other people's projects. But again, after reading the, uh, the TMNT, the early T, the early, uh, Mirage TMNT, I've been inspired now and seeing the local community, like a lot of, uh, the, the like pitiful human lizard black hole hunters and that's that's like gotten me really inspired and when we when we had the backspace you recall we hosted the uh 24 we brought back the 24 hour comics marathon yeah. where i met and had a chance to work with uh aaron feldman oh yeah yeah he's so, a really good writer i've i've been uh with him when he's coming up with his ideas and that kind of thing yeah and he's he's been great because we're we're into a lot of the same stuff but we're also into enough different stuff that we bring unique things and we are working on a project stemming from the 12 pager that we did for the, um, the last 12 hour marathon, which was that, um, that Western, you know, sort of sci-fi with the animals and stuff. In it. Right. Right. Yeah. That'll be interesting as like an ongo as like an ongoing thing. That would be cool. Well, we've been writing it on and off for about a year 
and recently we've both reconnected. Um, we, we've been involved in other projects. Like Aaron is one of the editors on the Toronto Comics Anthology right. for Volume 3. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually uh, contributing. Uh, Sari and I collaborated on a story. So it's uh, Sari's first uh, published credit as a writer. And it is my first time collaborating on a, on a story with my wife, which is, wow, which is interesting. Awesome. Like, so we're working and together. Andrew Stevenson and, and Nelson DeRocha have been on this podcast. So anyone who wants to learn more about the Toronto Comics Anthology can check out that episode uh, sure, to, yeah. to learn more about what they're doing because they're, they're on Volume 3 right now. But then you also teach, right? So you, you make a living off of your art in that way too, right? Yeah, I, I get um, – this is the fourth time this year – yeah, it's the fourth time I got, it's called the Artisan Education Grant through the Ontario Arts Council. Right. Uh, it's a grant program that funds artists to come in and work with uh, schools in Ontario, basically. So they could be private schools, they could be public schools or, or whatever, as long as they are accredited mm-hmm. and recognized. And basically, I do a comic book program with uh, the kids and I, and I work right now. I've sort of kept it specific to students aged like with grades four to eight that I'm working with specifically. Like I used to do like one to 12, but I'm finding that the students who are getting the most out of it are from that sort of in between age right right now. So I mean, it's fun working with the, the really young students, but they're limited as far as their understanding of how much they can do with the storytelling stuff. And when they get to high school, there is so much other stuff that they need to be doing outside of the classes. Like if I'm brought in as part of the art curriculum, it's just difficult for them to fit it in with their, their um, syllabus or whatever, with yeah. what they need to get done. Yeah. Then they, they put really strict, you know, restrictions on what, what can be done with it. So what got you into teaching? I took a uh, program when I was 17, it was a weekend program run at a local community center. It was called Comic Book Masters, and it was run by uh, Dave Bluestein. Okay. Nelvana Nel- animator, many years experience. And I think he's uh, currently one of the faculty heads of art fundamentals at uh, Seneca. Like, oh. so, so he got into that, but I remember he actually, like, he worked for image like he did some stuff for spawn like viking spawn covers and stuff like that so he taught this like weekend program and this is what got me into like drawing drawing comic stuff at that point so when i was learning there eventually after a year or so he was looking for instructors and the way he he was very enthusiastic he was very engaging yeah as instructor so he didn't just come in and just say like okay this is what we're he just really captured your attention with the way he did things like a lot of energy and it was a Saturday morning. So, I mean, you got people coming in on the weekend to draw. So he would make you, you know, glad that you missed your cartoons or whatever you were doing. Yeah. So seeing him in action sort of inspired me. So based on that, I started, you know, volunteering there after a year, after going through the program, Uh, I was volunteering with other people, but I got hired actually as an instructor there. And this was back in 1998, actually. So this is a while ago. So this is about 17, 18 years ago. Wow. I was in grade eight. Yeah. It's a long long time. I I keep forgetting how long I've been doing this, but since then, so a lot of weekend programs I taught and I started developing courses. I'm like, you know, it'd be great if we did a course on, you know, 
like just self-publishing, like having people coming up with their own stories and, and doing illustrations or an art director course where an artist uh, would come in, like an independent creator would work with the class right. on doing actual design work and stuff like that. So it was a really neat kind of um, environment uh, there. And, and I worked for Dave. I worked for Dave for about nine years, actually doing that stuff until eventually he stopped because he started working full time at Seneca and also doing a lot more animation work because uh, he, he had a family, like he had just started a young family. So yeah. he needed to do that stuff more during the week and have his weekends free. So eventually I started another, uh, as I mentioned earlier, another after school lunchtime program with that, with another artist. And that ran from the last, for the last few years, actually from 2009 to 2012 or 13. Cool, cool, good. And did you approach the Ontario Arts Council for that and like pitch them on on it? Or were they already doing it and you were like, hey, I have experience doing this, slot me in kind of thing? It, 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 there's an application process actually that you can go through and it's open to, to any artist who's interested in doing it. And what you have to do is demonstrate your ability as an artist, but also prove that you have experience teaching. Yeah, so, which you had. Yes, yes. So before, I think I started doing the OAC program in 2010. Okay. And I was turned on to it by a friend of mine who's a teacher, Richard Baxter in Toronto, who very, you know, he's worked in a lot of, you know, inner city schools and stuff. And he actually created a graffiti program that helped, you know, reduce the amount of dropouts at the school and really changed a lot of kids' lives in a big way, like got kids into art programs in high school. So he, we, I met him through a summer camp because I, again, I, all these things that I've done, uh, I keep forgetting. I, I, I was a program director at a summer camp. I've run like animation programs at summer camp. So I met him at camp one year. He was, uh, running the art program and I was the, the program director. So he told me about this grant and he knew the person, the liaison for it and put me in touch with, with her uh, at the office. So, I did the application, so I've been applying for it pretty much every year ever since, except when we had Temple of Toys. That was the year I didn't apply for the grant because there was just too much going on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now you're getting back into comics. You're teaming up with Aaron Feldman. You're doing all that kind of stuff. This workshop that we just came back from with all the customs, it's it's supposed to be the last one, but I feel like it might be a never-say-never never sort of situation. But what's next for you? Again, I, I'm I'm making a concerted effort this year to cut down the number of conventions that I'm doing in favor of development. So there's a project that I'm working on with Aaron. Right. And I just finished uh, illustrating my Toronto comic story. Uh, I'm currently actually, for the first time, Hogtown Horror. I don't know if you heard about this. I kind of have. It's it's an anthology, another anthology, right? It is from the Toronto Comics Anthology people. Uh, Nelson is heading this up, okay, along with uh, a couple of the the other editors from from that project. So it's a, kind of a branch off, but they're still connected. So it is a horror anthology based on Toronto. So I don't know if I'm somewhat responsible because I remember I was talking to them last year like in addition to Toronto Comics Anthology like it would be awesome if you guys did like a Toronto like sci-fi anthology or horror or something so then they announced this so I don't know if this is just coincidence that they came up with it after forgetting that we talked about it but needless to say when they announced it I'm like I want to do it so this is the first time I'm actually I wrote a story that I'm not illustrating I this is the first time I'm writing wow for another artist awesome 
So, and, and I specifically said there was an artist who I, who I got in touch with a friend of a friend who I grew up with said like, this is someone he's really talented, but he wants to get into the industry. And, um, his name is a uh, Jay Rosen. So he, we emailed back and forth and I said, okay, I don't know about any projects right now, but if there are, I see your stuff. It's great. Like he's a fantastic horror artist. So when I saw his stuff, I immediately thought of him. I'm like, this would be a great project to work with him on. Yeah. And I mean, he's, he's, um, been very, like I sent him the, I sent him the script. It got approved. They were very happy with the script that I sent in. I contacted him. I'm like, do you want to, you know, work together on this? So we're going to be uh, doing that. So that the, the Hogtown Horror, I believe, launches in the fall. Nice. Uh, additionally, I'm working on uh, Mark Twain's Niagara, which is a uh, Mark Twain story based in Niagara Fall, Niagara Falls. It was a short story that was adapted into a screenplay through AH Comics, and they're the ones I worked with on the Jewish Comics Anthology ah, a couple see, of years ago. Andy Stanley, who's the, the editor, uh, contacted me to be involved on that. And he's seen some of my like poster style illustrations that I've done for conventions. So considering the amount of people involved on that project, we have like Ty Templeton involved. We've got Ken Lashley is attached to that. We wow. have Mike Ruth. There were, there were, uh, Adam Gorham, like so many talented, like very well established people. Uh, Andy calls me one day. He's like, will you do the cover? He wants you to do the cover. The cover's done. Like the, wow. I, did, I did the cover and I was just sort of like, and this is another moment where I'm just sort of like, well, this is a huge opportunity. And I feel like whatever I do, I have to like really step it up because there's a lot of people on this project that I have deep respect for. Yeah, I mean, that, that they're working with. like in the industry for DC and Marvel. Like Ty Templeton's a legend. He's, yes. he's taught a lot of the guests that have been on this podcast, including you, Ken Lashley. You know, he used to do The Flash back in the day, and he works on some other stuff for DC and Marvel and that kind of thing. So, yeah, these are these are big-name people. Yeah, so, so with all of them involved, the fact that I got asked, I was, like, blown away. Like, I was extremely humbled. I'm like, oh, like, even with the Jewish comics anthology, my work is alongside Joe Kubert. My work is alongside – there's Art Spiegelman in the book. Wow. There's, there's Crumb in the book. There was a Picar story in there. There's so much in that book. I have to go back and reread it because it's, it's like the amount of people involved in that. And, uh, you know, Adam Gorham obviously is yeah, well. Involved yeah. Yeah. From, in from too. the violent, he's drawing the violent the right violent, now for yeah. image. Yeah. Which I've is seen, I've seen his really uh, stuff for that, which lo- looks fantastic. But like every, every time he posts a sketch, I'm just like blown away. Like, I, I love, I love his, uh, his, his style, but so many people on this. So I feel when I did that cover, when I saw Mike Ruth, uh, at a signing a couple of weeks ago, I did a variant cover for Oric of the Great White, White North, which was a Timmins-based Northern Ontario story right. done by uh, Davis Dewsbury and uh, Andrew Thomas. Mm-hmm. So they asked me, I'm friends with both of them, they said, will you do a variant? I'm like, yeah, sure. I love, I love the Oric character, which was designed by Mike Ruth. So he was at the signing at Gotham Central a couple of weeks ago. Right. And he's like, yeah, I got to tell you, like, you really did a great job. So when someone like Mike Ruth compliments me, I like really take it to heart. That's like, awesome, like, man. Yeah, you're, you're getting some traction. You're, you, you've got stuff going on. You get people knowing who you are. It's I, I'm, I'm hoping to again, like try to get back 
into creating and people getting to associate me more. I feel that like, in like honestly putting it out there that over the last few years with conventions, it's sort of been uh, kind of spinning my wheels, doing more of the fan art thing. It became a crutch uh, for a while and I'm moving away from it now because it's sort of held me back from creating. And I'm not, again, there's, there's a lot of debate about fan art and I don't want to, get into it because that's i'm sure you could do two hours just about that alone yeah, yeah talking about that but whoever does it you know there's reasons for doing it and not doing it and stuff debatable but um i found for me personally it was just stopping me from pursuing creative projects and after i got really inspired like again seeing all the stuff coming out in the community i want to get back in i want to be known as someone who's actively making comics so i just had the, the the strange romance anthology i was i was published in that came out on february uh, 10th as well which was like a sci-fi horror romance thing yeah it was coinc- sort of like a mixture of like ec horror and the true romance comics of the of the of the 50s yeah yeah and, and it was that was that was a lot of fun too i did a story that was it's a 12 pager so i wrote and illustrated it but it's a completely silent story. There's no dialogue in it at all. Wow. So I approached it like Fantasia, like Disney's Fantasia. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm picturing like almost like music in my head. Like what, what like the sort mops, of like, like Mickey Mouse and the mobs and Fantasia and that kind yeah, of Yeah. Well, thing. I, I'm thinking more that the, like the more the dinosaur one type, like it yeah. has more of that. Yeah. That was more of my inspiration for it. But I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to tell a story without, dialogue plus not having to worry about fitting in dialogue i i had a lot of space to let the art breathe which is which is fantastic too and i did it in a very disney style actually with a um or or i should say classically animated style uh similar to what i did for the jewish comics anthology which was painted backgrounds wow and uh cell like cell shaded characters so i wanted to look like something that was classically animated wow basically that, in that's told awesome. comic form cool so where can people find you if they want to get some of these projects and 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 get in touch with you and you know maybe take one of your classes if they're if they're young enough to do so? Well, with with the classes, I'm usually contacted through my website uh, kershey.com. Okay. So K I R S H Y. I just I sign Kershey now. It's just a shortened version of my last name. Uh, inspired by I remember like Wally Wood would sign. Woody, Woody right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I got into this thing. I think back in 2010, signing like Kershey, and I've started. And I remember meeting Stanley and hearing him like rip apart my former business partner for the fact that his signature was like completely unreadable. You couldn't see what the letters were, and at the time, my signature was like, "Oh my god, I don't even want him to see this." I was like covering it. Oh man! So Stanley scared me into like changing my signature completely. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, so so Kershey.com, uh, you'll have a list of my uh, upcoming projects as well on there. So there's mention of Strange Romance, mention of the Toronto Comics Anthology, Hogtown Horror. So lots of stuff that pleases to say that I'm actively doing comics this year, which I'm happy about. Plus, I'm hoping that by the time Fan Expo rolls around that I will have that first chunk of the uh, series uh, it's called and for the first time i am announcing it okay. on this uh, podcast it's called a uh, tailbone awesome that's nice. the one you're working on with aaron feldman that is the one with that that aaron and i are, are co-writing nice. and i'm illustrating so I, i'm super excited oh. i've been immersing myself in, in western research 
Old West stuff for the last month. Wow. So guys, look out for that. That's awesome. Can people follow you on Twitter? Do you have a Twitter account or... Best to follow me on Instagram, actually, okay. Okay. at uh, Shane Kershey. So it's my, my first name because I, I don't know if Kershey itself was taken. Okay. So it's at Shane Kershey. And what I'm doing on Instagram right now is a daily uh, sketch, like a daily. So I am updating daily with, and this month has actually been development work for characters who will be appearing in Tailbone, like some background characters, but also some uh title characters or, or featured characters as well so what is the plot like give us a brief synopsis of the what tailbone is so people want to check it out tailbone is essentially it's like deadwood meets kill bill with um i'm trying to think what's with with, with animal farm mixed That's in? Awesome. Was, was that the was that the one i came up yeah, with yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, it is a it is a world it is it is kind of like an alternate earth where it's like an old west setting, right? But you have animals and humans, sort of like bipeds, living amongst each other. If you are old enough to remember this, like think of the cartoon, like Brave Star, right? Back, you know, back from the eighties. But but it doesn't really have that sci-fi technology edge. It's more just pure old west and gore and violence, but only as much as it serves the story. Right. So it, like I want it to, it is going to be for a mature audience story even though it's animal characters but it's meant to it, it, it's like what Kill Bill is to Charlie's Angels. Right. Sort of in that way yeah, where it's yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. taking something like oh you've got anthropomorphized or 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 not no that would be objects or whatever i don't know like animals basically yeah. humanoid animals interacting in a world of humans so there's there's a lot of revenge plots and 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 various different things going on there uh, i see i see cool that's awesome man well thanks for coming and uh, talking to me on uh, on speech bubble this is this has been an honor i mean if people want to check out our podcast they can go to neversleepsnetwork.com they can follow us uh, at speech bubble on twitter they can find us on facebook uh, at speech bubble pod on twitter i should say and uh, facebook.com slash speech bubble pod so thanks shane uh i hope we can do this again sometime absolutely Th- thanks for having me hopefully uh, after uh tailbone gets out there we can talk about it in a bit more detail and, yeah uh, absolutely for sure and then you'll be one of the first to know when it does get that launch hopefully in the next couple of months man I- i'd love to have you back this has been a great conversation thank you thanks Great being here And we'll see you again next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 